Now for our second reading and again our text, let's turn to the letter of Paul to the Colossians and chapter 3. In the Church Bible, that's on page 1354. 1354. And in chapter 3, essentially the focus is, uh, since we are new creatures in Christ, we should therefore live in a new way. If then, or since then, you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, Circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. And for our text, let's take the words of verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord particularly the very first exhortation there, standing on its own, as we'll see in a minute, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, last uh, Lord's Day morning, we looked at a text that is really quite similar to this one. Uh, You'll remember we looked at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, And in that prayer, 
He prayed that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. And here we have the same essential idea, but with a slight difference. In this text, the indwelling Christ is actually described as the indwelling word of Christ. And that effectively ties the presence and power of Christ in your heart to the presence and power of his word in your heart. So that if I was to ask you, well, in in what way does Christ dwell in you? You would say, well, he dwells in and through his word. And as I receive his word, I receive himself. And as his word dwells within me, so he dwells within me. And when Christ speaks about dwelling in him and he dwelling in us, it's interesting that he he speaks of him dwelling in us interchangeably with his word dwelling in us. For example, I am the true vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And then notice how he changes it just in the next breath. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. I'm I'm not going to bring anything out in connection with that tonight. Uh, But having said that, it's worth just noting this, that as you abide in Christ or Christ abides in you and his words abide in you, there is an effect on your prayer life, obviously. If that mutual abiding is there, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. But for now, my only point really is this, that the presence of Christ and his power in your heart is tied in to the presence of his word and its power in your heart. So clearly, the Savior dwells in your heart in his own word or with his own word. So let's look, uh, bearing that in mind, let's look at the indwelling word of Christ. And before we look at it in detail, we need to consider just two preliminary questions. There's a question of punctuation and a question of interpretation, just to clear the way to go into the text properly. The first is a question of punctuation. And as you look at verse 16, you'll notice that the first comma appears after the word wisdom. Now, I would suggest to you that it might help us to understand the teaching of the text better if we put a colon or a dash after the word richly. In other words, when I read uh, the text earlier, I just followed the punctuation, but let me follow this suggested punctuation. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom... Therefore, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, in suggesting that, I'm not at all altering anything that's in the Greek scriptures. Not at all. I would suggest that in the English, that's how we ought to understand what's being said in the Greek. In other words, there is one single stark statement one exhortation, one simple but profound exhortation, and it governs everything else that follows. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. From that, in all wisdom, you will teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even as you sing with grace in your hearts. To the Lord. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The second preliminary question, if you like, is a question of interpretation. And 
I suppose it's just this. What does it mean when it speaks of the word of Christ? Is it the word about Christ? Or is it the word that Christ himself spoke? And I suppose if you're anything like myself, you would naturally think that the reference here is to the word that Christ spoke. And I would suggest that you're right, that that is what Paul means. Let the words that Jesus spoke dwell in you richly. But when we understand it like that, we've got to be careful that we don't confine that too much. What, after all, are the words which Jesus spoke? Your tendency is possibly to think of the words that he spoke during his earthly ministry, the words that are probably in your Bible in red. Some Bible editions just print the words of Jesus in red. I'm not really sure why that practice began. I don't particularly approve of it. Um, but in any case, you have his words spoken in red. These are the words that he uttered in the days of his earthly ministry. His ethical teaching, for example, his wonderful ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Or you have his later enchanting and elusive parables. Or perhaps his prophecies with which he closes his ministry, prophecies surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem or the destruction of the world and his own second coming. Sometimes these words are transparent and they're simple. Sometimes they're veiled and they're very mysterious. But in connection with these words in red or the words that Christ spoke in the days of his ministry, we can say of them what he said of them himself, that the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. These are powerful words to use about his own words. The words that I speak to you, and as we'll see, he still addresses to us, are spirit and they are life. But really the word of Christ or the words of Christ are more than these words. One of the titles that Christ carries in the New Testament is the title Logos, or Word. And John famously introduces his gospel with these immortal words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word logos means message, even communication. You'll remember that Jesus himself told us that no one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son reveals him. So the knowledge of the Father is impossible for all of us as sinful fallen creatures. But the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So the purpose of Christ is to speak forth uh, the message from God, a declaration of what God is like, and a declaration of the terms on which we can know God and make our way back to God. So he is the communicator in the Trinity. It is from him that knowledge comes from God to ourselves. He is the word of God. So in other words, at least since the fall, at least since the fall, every communication of God to us is through the Logos, through the word, through him who is the message. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And just to consider the ramifications of that, you think for a minute of the two portions of Scripture which fall on either side of the words written in red. 
you have first of all the vast stretches of the Old Testament. And then on the other side of the words in red, you have these letters written by Paul, by John, or by James, or by some other unknowns. And what do we say of both these tracts of Scripture? Well, we're told concerning the words of the prophets. We're told that these words were given to them by the Spirit of Christ. Peter tells us that. He says that no prophecy given long ago was of private origin. Because, he said, the prophets did not speak of themselves. Rather, he said, they spoke, or holy men of God spoke, as they were moved or ferried along by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to tell us that the Spirit that was in them was the Spirit of Christ. Now, it's a very strange expression to use that, because we would not think of the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament and inspiring these prophets to write these sublime prophecies. We would not think of the Holy Spirit as being the Spirit of Christ, but that is how Peter denominates him. And the reason he calls him the Spirit of Christ is because he wants to draw our attention to this very thing, that the only way in which God can reach us is through that Son, because it is the Son who would one day open up this channel of communication. It is the Son who was going to come into the world and take our place and die for us, to open a way of access to God. And that way of access to God includes the words that stream from the Father down to ourselves. They come from the Son, so that every word in the Old Testament is the word of Christ to you and to me. Every word of the Old Testament is the word of Christ, inspired by, as Peter says, the Spirit of Christ. So that covers all the words in the Bible before these words in red, which Jesus spoke in his ministry. Or then think of the words that followed, because after all, following the resurrection of Christ, we have the Acts of the Apostles. We have the letter to the Romans, to the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, and so on. What words are they? Well, are they not the words that the Spirit of Christ directly inspired the apostles to write? Christ told them that although they had forgotten many things that he had taught, when the Holy Spirit came, whom he would send, he would bring the words of Christ to their remembrance. So that the words which they wrote to all the churches, establishing all the churches in the truth, and leading all the churches into the truth, are the words of Christ. What are the words that we are reading here in Colossians 3 but the words of Christ. In every single epistle of the New Testament, you are reading the words of the risen and exalted Christ, put into the hearts of inspired men, as they too were moved by the Spirit of God. Now, the reason that I'm emphasizing all that to you is just very, very simple, really. Because when Paul tells you to make sure that you allow the word of Christ to dwell in you, what he is telling you to do is to allow the Bible to dwell in you. To make sure that you take this whole book of God from the first breathed words of the Logos in Genesis 1 right down to the last plea and petition in Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus, let all these words dwell in your heart, and let them dwell there richly. Now, I don't know what your precise relationship is to the Bible tonight. Um, 
Some of you may have a very loose relationship with this Bible. Some of you may have a very strong relationship with the Bible. And according to what your relationship is like, so is your standing and the strength of your standing. Let me elaborate on that. What does he mean by the word of God dwelling in our hearts? Last Sabbath day, when I spoke about Christ himself dwelling in our hearts, I distinguished between four different kinds of relationship that you could have with Christ himself, which may well, well, everybody comes into one of these categories. You can be, um, you can be in this relationship, which is no relationship, that Christ is a stranger to you, or Christ is a visitor to the home of your heart, or Christ can be a guest in the home of your heart, or Christ can be a resident in the home of your heart. Now, let me elaborate a little on that figure and move it to the word of Christ, his Bible. The words of Christ can be strangers to you, or they can be visitors, or they can be guests, or they can be residents in your hearts. As I said, let me elaborate a little on that. Your first relationship with the word of God is that of a stranger. Can we even say a total stranger? Sad to say in this land of the book, and there was a reason this country was called the land of the book, but sad to say in this land of the book, there are people who are total strangers to the word of God, or the word of God is a total stranger to them. They may possibly know fragments of it without realizing they do. I mean, sometimes you can actually know a person a little without realizing who they actually are. Because of the um, ancient nature of the scriptures that they've always been around, there are little words and phrases that have come into our common linguistic currency, and they're part of the fabric of our culture part of our literature, and people don't know that they have come from the Word of God. There was a famous novel written about Glasgow called No Mean City. What's that but a biblical expression? That is lifted straight from Saul of Tarsus' description of Tarsus, the city from which he came. He calls it in Acts, No Mean City. How many people who read that book really understand where that expression comes from? People still speak of being saved by the skin of their teeth. Where does that come from? It comes from an expression Job used, which William Tyndale first translated as skin of my teeth. Or again, if someone falls by the wayside, a common expression. Where does it come from? From the word of Christ and from the parable of the sower. If a strong man has feet of clay, where does that come from? Does it not come from the image seen by Daniel of the man of metal which had feet of clay? Or if there is sadly a fly in the ointment, where does that come from? It comes from Ecclesiastes and so on. These words and phrases are straight from the word of God and they may more or less be the only contact people have with this word at all. Total strangers to it. And sad to say, they may be happy to keep it that way, even to the extent that if you show them a Bible and say, well, will you take that and read it? Because it might actually do you good. You might be surprised at what's inside to say. No. Their minds are so full already of misconceptions and their hearts so swayed by prejudices that they won't even take it and they won't read it. So the word of God remains a stranger. And it's no word that Christ, it's no wonder that Christ therefore himself remains a stranger. If the words of Christ are strange, so will Christ himself be a stranger to you. And what a sad thing it is if you know so many people in this world, but you don't know the one person that you really need to know. But none of you are in this category. None of you. The second relationship it's possible to hold with the word of God is that of a visitor, or it is a visitor 
to the home of your heart. In other words, the word calls on you from time to time. And like every visitor, they just call. The difference between a visitor and a guest really is the matter of invitation, is it not? It's the invitation that distinguishes the visitor from the guest. And for so many people, it is just an invitation. It is not an invitation, sorry, but they simply visit. They call in your home and the word of God calls upon you. Classically, that happens when an occasion comes around like a funeral or a wedding. Now, you want to go to the funeral. You want to go to the wedding because you like the people, you respect the people, or you're just simply connected to the people. And maybe you wouldn't have it this way, but this book is always open at these events. And there's a reading from this book. So here it is calling on your heart. You didn't ask it to call. Uh, You may suspect that it would call that day at that time, but you just have to endure the visit. Sometimes the visit can be okay. There may be something um, that the visitor says that is slightly interesting. Maybe sometimes even when he visits you on these occasions, you actually say to yourself, well, maybe I should consider inviting that person around. Uh, Because something that he said really struck me. But at the end of the day, you don't do it. In fact, you're glad when the visit is over. You might say, as you sometimes do when you have a visitor that you never really asked for, and you're not particularly keen on seeing again, you might say, well, uh, come again sometime. But it's through your teeth you say it. Really, you're not fussed, and you wouldn't mind if that visitor never called again. Because the fact of the matter is that you can manage fine without him. You don't need this visitor in your house. You don't need him in your life. And for some of you, that may well be your relationship with the word of God. The third relationship is more close than that. It's not a visitor. It's a guest. And as I said before, the difference here is invitation. He's not uncalled for. He doesn't just knock at your door. He actually comes because you made an appointment with him. For whatever reason, you've wanted to change your relationship with this visitor into one of a guest and a welcome guest. And the reason for that is because you've taken an interest in the visitor. Maybe you understand that the visitor has an interest in you. But you've come to hear him often enough, perhaps at things like weddings and funerals, to recognize that this visitor is really a fascinating visitor with fascinating stories to tell. He speaks about things to do with the cosmos. He speaks about things to do with life and death. He has an endless series of stories about fascinating men and women who have lived in the history of this world and who have lived by faith and who have lived lives very different from other people. He also seems to focus on a single man who can somehow help you in whatever situation you are in, even to the point of delivering your soul from death. Now, at first, you might have found that talk irritating, but now you want to hear it. So you make an appointment for this person to come to the house of your heart. You made the first appointment for 11 o'clock every Sabbath day. You're very happy for the man to call and to bring his words of Christ. And then, because you found them so interesting, you asked him to come again at 6 o'clock on the Sabbath evening. And in fact, because you began to find him so interesting and so relevant and so fascinating, you even asked him if he would kindly call at half past seven on a Wednesday evening, simply because you want the man to come around. Your interest is quickened. You want to hear him. Perhaps even you've come to the position where you might say that this is the most important guest that you have ever let into your home. 
and you would never want him to stop visiting. But he's still only a guest. And just as the difference between a visitor and a guest consists in invitation, the difference between a guest and a resident has to do with who's in control. Or at least let me put it this way. As long as he remains just a guest, you are very much saying there is a time for you to come in, but there's also a time for you to go. Your heart is your home. Your life is your life. You don't want anyone else taking any ownership over it. That's such a big thing in the world today, uh, to be your own person, your own man or your own woman. And this idea of personal rights and personal space and you, you in control of you is so important. It's the big thing that whatever happens, whatever happens, you are in control of your life and your destiny. And it doesn't matter what the guest says, you are not prepared for that to change. You let him in on your terms. You may even let him stay for hours. But at the end of the day, you want him to go. Sometimes you're impatient, actually, till he goes. The reason for that is because you sometimes resent his conversation. You're happy for this guest to talk about things and the world and even heaven and hell. You're happy for him to speak about that, but not when he comes to speaking about personal things. When he says, well, how about you? How about your condition? Or even if he starts making suggestions about the home of your heart and how it looks and what it should look like. And you're not happy about that. That's when the conversation often terminates. I've known people like that down through the years, people who are happy to talk religion, happy to talk Christianity, happy to talk about Christ, happy to talk about Christians, old Christians, old ministers, old experiences, things that were said, things that were done, wonderful things. And the minute you say, well, what about you? Conversation's over. Because that's my home. This is my territory. Don't ask him to intervene there. But the Christian goes further than that. In fact, what distinguishes a Christian from all these others is that his relationship to Christ and the word of Christ has been turned, it's grown from being stranger to visitor to guest to dweller. A dweller. Christ has come into your heart by invitation. He stood at the door and he knocked. In Holman Hunt's old famous picture of Christ knocking at the door, I, I don't endorse pictures of Christ. Uh, for theological reasons. But the painting does exist, and there's no point pretending it doesn't exist. In that painting, there is a picture of Christ standing at the door, and famously, there is no handle on the outside of the door, which was an, an intentional detail on the part of the painter. There's no handle on the door, because he is simply trying to convey the reality that the handle is on the inside. You must open that door. As Jesus said, that if we open that door, he will come in and sup with us. He and his father will come in and sup with us. We've asked him in. And not just to sup, but to have supper, but to stay. Why did we do that? Because we understood from his visits Every time we asked him to call, we began to understand that there's something fundamentally wrong with our own house. There's something fundamentally wrong with our own hearts. When he began to tell us that our hearts actually were deceitfully wicked, were deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, we began to understand that that was really true. 
when he began to teach us that we were bound for destruction, that we were bound for hell itself, and that our only hope was for him to come in and to inhabit the house of our own heart, to reside with us, to change that house, to renovate that house, and to cleanse that house so that he becomes owner, occupier of that house, we realized that that was true. It's my only hope for life and for eternity. In other words, when Christ dwells in the heart of the Christian, he doesn't do so as an ordinary resident. Like I say, he's come to stay. And he's come to stay as the owner and occupier. Someone you have given full license to change the house because it's decaying and it's dying. If being my own boss is the most important thing in life for us all, then allowing him to be entire master and boss of the home is the single greatest decision we can ever make. It's the wisest and most sensible decision too. Why? Because the house of your heart and the very fabric of your life is doomed to destruction. We are all by nature like foolish men who have built our house upon sand, the sandy foundations of the philosophies of this life, the godless philosophies of this life. And however spectacular and imposing the structures that we build, they'll fall. I mean, people are so easily impressed today with people who achieve things, whether in sport or in music or in nothing, really, because very often celebrities gain celebrity status on the back of what? I have absolutely no idea. But in any case, people are impressed with all these things, and they don't mean anything. They mean nothing lasting, None of these lives will stand unless the Lord Jesus Christ has entered the houses of these people's hearts and transformed their lives. They're going to fall, just like the house that the foolish man built on the sand. I don't care how it looks. It'll fall. The wise man, of course, on the other hand, builds his house upon the rock. In other words, you call the Lord Jesus Christ to come in and be the builder. Well, you've started building. Let's just say he just changes that. He transforms that. He renovates it, and he makes it a house that will stand when the winds blow and the floods come in and the rains come down. You've asked him in for a life-changing communion. And that's reflected in your relationship now with this book. What is this book to you? What, what does it mean to you? It'd be interesting to know your relationship to it. Really interesting to know. If you're a Christian today, this is central to your life. Absolutely central to your life. And it is absolutely formative in your life. It's what determines how the stones are placed in the fabric of your life. You're building the house of your life brick by brick by brick. And this is what determines how you are building it. Let Christ dwell. He does dwell. As a Christian, he does. Let him dwell or let him dwell richly. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? There are two ideas conveyed by the word richly. The first is, let it dwell abundantly. Let every part of it dwell. Take it all in. Read it all, so that all of it, to some degree or another, may eventually find a place in your heart. The word of Christ doesn't consist of one book. It consists of 66 books. Every scripture or all scripture is inspired of God. It is breathed forth by the word himself. 
and he has inscripturated it for your benefit, all of it. Let all of it find a place in your heart. You say, how? I'll come to that in a second. But let it dwell there abundantly. Not just a couple of texts you learned long ago. A couple of passages that have become important to you through time. Good. It's good that a couple of passages have become important to you through time. God wants much more than that for you. Much more than that. Let it dwell in you richly, abundantly, or richly in an enriching way. In other words, let it dwell in you with real transformative power. Let the word of Christ educate you. Let it direct you in your life and in your choices. Let it comfort you and console you in your sorrows. Let it rebuke you when you err. Let it exhort you when you're faint of heart. Let it change you. Let it change you. Let it be that your relationship to this word is of such a nature that it is actually transforming your life. How many of you can honestly say that? No, maybe, perhaps you can say, well, you know, it did change my life when I became a Christian. Well, that's all very well. But is that it? Is that it? When Paul says to these Christians in Corinth, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's obviously wanting more than that. He's obviously wanting more than rebirth. You'll remember that text that uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he tells them that by looking into the Bible, they are being changed into the image that they see there from one degree of glory to the other. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we beholding as in a glass or in a mirror, we beholding as in a mirror, you see, he calls this a mirror. No, it's a strange mirror. Bunyan actually in one of his, um, uh, I can't remember where exactly in the Pilgrim's Progress. I think it's in connection with, with Christiana and the shepherds. But he, he actually speaks of the, of the mirror of God's word being like a, a two-sided mirror. You know, sometimes you get these swivel mirrors. Well, he says, in one side, he says, what you see is yourself. When you look into the word of God, you see yourself. And how true that is, you see yourself. James chapter 1. Like a, a man beholding his natural face in a mirror, so we look into the word of God and start to say we see our own natural face. Literally, in the Greek, the face of our genesis, the face of our birth, we see ourselves in the book. But he says, if you flip over the mirror, what you see is Jesus Christ and his glory. And, and how true that is, because this mirror reflects to you the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was referring to when he said that we, looking into this mirror, he says, are transformed. We are changed, he said, as we look into it, into the image we see there, from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another. That's what he means, from one degree of glory to another. <clears throat> uh, let me put that this way, or explain it this way. Uh, as you genuinely interact with the Word of God, and I say genuinely interact, as you genuinely interact with the Word of God, something, it's hard to avoid the word magical, even though in one respect it's entirely inappropriate, in another respect it catches it. Something amazing happens. Something spiritual happens. The inside of your heart is actually being transformed. What happens as the word comes to dwell in your heart each time you contact it? Are you making contact with it just now? Even if the word of God is making contact with you just now, it is actually changing your heart from one degree of glory to another until what? Until the image that you see there is actually completely represented in your own heart. In other words, you become like him. That process certainly is only complete 
when believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and when we go to glory, and when we see him as he is, because we are like him, like him. The work's finished then. But each time, each time you make that contact, each time he dwells like that in your heart, you are changed. So let the word of God dwell in you, not just in abundance, but with a transformative power. Now, how do you achieve that? And you know, you could ask that question, um, well, you can ask any question in lots of different ways, but you can ask it very sincerely tonight. You can say to yourself, my relationship with the word of God is not what it was. It's not what it was when I first discovered it. And, and when I first called this visitor to be a guest, and, and then when I asked him to come in and stay, it's not there. I don't listen to him the way I used to. I, he doesn't seem to change my life the way it used to. And for some reason, I'm reluctant to pick up the book and to read it because it seems to have lost its power. Well, of course, it hasn't. I, I won't say that nothing's gone wrong because it has, but it's certainly not the word of God that's lost its power. How do you make the word of God dwell in your heart again? Well, in the morning, I spoke about thankfulness and how to be thankful. Incidentally, the text here says to be ye thankful. How are you to be thankful? Well, the first way in which you were to be thankful was to pray for gratitude. Pray for a spirit of gratitude. The second way was to practice gratitude. Well, there's something similar here. The first way in which you get the word of God to reside in your heart is simply by praying. Praying that the word of Christ would dwell in your heart in an enriching and transformative way. Um, like every prayer, it's slightly more difficult to offer than you realize. It's always easy to, to put up a request that's right in form, but not right in spirit. And one of the things that's, well, one of the reasons that the word of God does not dwell in your heart when you come to it is because you haven't been humble enough in asking for it. Like its author, he doesn't dwell with the proud. The word of God and a proud heart, you'll never find them together. You won't find the word of God living in a proud heart. He doesn't like it. I, the Lord, the high and lofty one, dwell with the humble. I dwell with the humble and with him who is of a contrite heart. He doesn't dwell with the proud in fact, God says, I know the proud far off. I know them at a distance. I'm a stranger to them, and they're strangers to me. That is so important because it's easy to take a critical spirit with you to the word of God. It's easy to take a non-teachable spirit with you to the word of God. God's been telling you something for months, and you haven't applied it. Why on earth are you expecting anything else? He's told you what's necessary to be done in your heart, and you won't do it. You won't do the renovation. You need a teachable, repentant spirit. You need to pick up the word of God and do word of God and do him the honor of saying, Lord, I can't understand this book, and I will get nothing from it unless you in grace and mercy open this book for me just now. Help me to receive it in such a way that it dwells in me and changes me. And again, you see, um, if you pick it up like that, that, that will change things. It will change things. Send thy light forth and thy truth. Pray that. 
give me understanding as well as the Bible. Send thy light forth and thy truth. Let them be guides to me and lead me to thy holy hill, even where thy dwellings be. But there are certain things that you need to remember in connection with the word of God that will absolutely change how you view it. The first thing is that you need to remember that it is a loving word sent from the lover of your soul to you. It is the word of Jesus, the Christ, your Savior, your Lord, and your King. A word from your beloved addressed to his beloved. And surely if you love this Christ, the realization that this is the word of this Christ to you changes how you view it when you pick it up. It's amazing how the devil would make you see it as a selection of ancient and half-dead documents. But the moment it is the word of your beloved, that changes. In a day of texts and emails, there's, uh, I suppose, some aspects of romance that's lost. People often used to say that uh, when you were in love with someone and you got a letter, that your heart filled with anticipation because you recognize the writing. And you, you knew the writing as the writing of someone you loved and someone who loved you. And it gave you a sense of anticipation in opening the letter. And perhaps you can remember how eagerly you would open such a letter, you would read it, and you would reread it because you wanted to catch the nuance, you wanted to catch the mood, you wanted to catch the love. You wanted to get the fragrance that was behind the letter. Well, are these things not so in connection with this message of Christ to your soul? It is the word of your Christ, your Savior, who loves you. That should alter your attitude in coming to it. Second as well as being a loving word. Now, <clears throat> of course, it won't come to you like that if you're a stranger to it. But if you have embraced this Savior, every word spoken is a word of love. It's an epistle of love. Second, as well as being a loving word, it is a living word. Ah, there's a lot in that, far more than I can do justice to. Um. When God speaks, the word never freezes and dies. It just, it just remains alive, just as God lives. It's, it's ever living. Uh, this, this book doesn't age. It, it's unlike every other book in that respect. It simply doesn't age. And it was written that way. It was written in such a way that it would cross the chasms of the centuries and reach every soul who receives it with the same life and dynamism as it had when it was originally spoken. It is an ever-living, ever-present, ever-relevant word of God. You know, I sometimes read of people who say, well, you need to make the word of God relevant. Well, no. <laughs> Perhaps we may need to stop making it irrelevant. That would be a fair point. You don't make it relevant because it relates. It is always relevant. It doesn't need anything done to it. By all means, don't obscure it. But it's a living epistle from a living God. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And they are still alive. They are still alive. The word of God is living, quick, living. It's alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you feel that power when the, when the word of God sometimes comes to you with that life and dynamism. It's alive. And therefore, you have the knowledge of knowing that when you sit down yourself in the word of God and you pick it up, it's a living message from God to you today. Do, do you see the point? I am not reading a document that was written, let's say, 
in 54 AD, a letter from a man called Paul to a church in Corinth? No. I am reading what God designed to be spoken to me today in my situation. A living word. Remember that when you pick up the Bible. Not a dead manuscript, but a living word. And third, as well as being loving and living, it is also an intensely personal word. It's a personal word. The fact that this loving and living word reaches all the Lord's people doesn't devalue the fact that it comes to you as though you are the only person in the universe. And that is the way it's designed to come to you. It's designed to come to you personally. Again, from the lover of your soul to your soul. And you must, by prayer and meditation, internalize it. You must internalize it. What I mean by that is that you, that you must take it and you must learn the practice of coming to God and saying, like Jacob, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me here. I'm not going to let you go until you give me a knowledge that this is now in me. It's part of my understanding and part of my life because that's what you would have this word to be. Now, if the Bible is all that, if it's loving and living and personal, like I said, that's got to change your approach. First of all, please just give it time. Give the Bible time. We speak of daily devotions, and they have their necessary place, but they are seldom enough, even in connection with the Bible. Have you got leisure time? Why not try reading the Bible in it? Why not try reading a swathe of chapters? There are times, undoubtedly, when a single text from the Word of God is enough to read and to take with you. I'm not one of these who's going to be prescriptive on all these matters, not at all. But I will say to you right now that you can't get enough of the Word of God. Can't get enough of it. Make it a book for your leisure. Read it. We're not meant to read it all in the same way. There's a huge difference between taking three verses in the letter to the Romans and a whole chapter of genealogy in First Chronicles. But give every kind of scripture its place, whether it's law or history or precept or promise. Give it all its place. And each time you come to it, say, Lord, change me with this. Change me with this. Change my desires and change my resolutions and change my behavior. Give it time. Give the word of God time. And then again, give it that sense of expectation. You may have lost a sense of expectation because it has ceased to somehow affect you. And is that that? Are you going to let that be? Are you going to be content with that kind of relationship between you and the word of God for the rest of your days in this life? Is the Bible a book now that you'll take down for family worship and put back on its shelf and that's the end of it? No. Let that be the aberration. Let your initial relationship with the word be the right one. Come to it and say, well, Lord, I believe now that this word lives and it's a loving word from you as my savior to me. So please speak, transform and change. And according to your asking, so shall it be done to you. According to your faith, so shall it be. Ask and it shall be given. And the Bible will once again begin to live in your heart. And again, make sure you give it your heart. It's interesting that this very passage tells you to make sure you get rid of other things out of your heart and life. Get rid of things like anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy. These are all squatters in your heart. I hope they're not tenants. I hope they're not tenants. Let's just say they're squatters. Well, you don't need to serve them eviction notices, do you? 
Just boot them out. What right have these things, what right have these things got to be in your heart? Do you not realize that they are driving your resident away? Will Christ dwell in a heart like that? No. He wants the house clean. He wants the house renovated. Purge out. Purge out anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication from your mouth and lies. And as you put on tender mercies and kindness and humility, the word comes back in. Because he'll dwell in a heart like that. I've... I'm going to say I've gone over my time because I'm tired saying it and you're tired hearing it. But I'm going to just say just very briefly in conclusion that if you do allow this word of God to dwell in your heart, you'll notice that it begins to overflow. As it dwells richly, it overflows and it overflows in two directions. It overflows out towards God. It overflows out towards others. First of all, towards others. As the word of Christ dwells in you richly in all wisdom, sorry, as it dwells in you richly, then in all wisdom you will teach and admonish one another. What that means essentially, I suppose, is that fellowship and mutual exhortation comes to life. Have you noticed that fellowship dies when the word of God doesn't dwell in people's hearts? When the word of God doesn't dwell in your heart, You've got nothing to say, have you? There's no real interaction between your life and the word of God. So you've got nothing to say. You'll just have your cup of tea. But when the word of God begins to function dynamically in your heart again, you've got something to say, and so does your friend have something to say to you. And it will be wise. In all wisdom, you will teach and admonish each other, each other simply because the word of God is back dwelling in your heart where it should be. Not only that, but in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you'll sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I'm not going down the alley of showing, it's an important one, how the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs is a descriptive term, a first century descriptive term for the book of Psalms, which is the word of Christ, by the way. It's, it's a book about Christ, the Psalms. It's also a book that Christ spoke, breathed, and inspired. And I suppose more than any other book, the more that book fills you, not only does it overflow out to others, but it, it, go, it goes back to God. You have praise again. You, you, you sing to the praise and glory of God. Is there anything comparable with having the Psalms living in your heart? The word of God filling your heart so that it just flows back out towards himself. Do we see the wonder of it? No wonder he wants the word of God to dwell in our hearts richly. May it come to dwell in your heart like that too. Let's close by uh, reading in Psalm 1 on page 200. Psalm 1, which uh, reminds us in verse 2 that the man of God places his delight upon God's law and meditates on his law day and night. So even when he wakes up at night time, he gives it his attention. He does the same by day. The result is that he's like a tree growing planted beside a river. That's his source of life, the word of God. And he yields his fruit according to the season. Um, is it a season of affliction? He's got an appropriate fruit. Is it the season of um, prosperity? He's got the appropriate fruit. And his leaf never, ever fades. Uh, we'll hear verses 3 to 6 to the tune talus to God's praise.
Before we leave, just please remember, as I said in the morning, that the, uh, those on the gallery uh, leave first. Just use the stairs and the exit that you came in by. And then uh, when they've left, those downstairs can leave just using the exit that you're uh, nearest to. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.